listeners. I got this note from Tammy that I'd like to share. Tammy writes, Hi, Tig. I'm a high school Spanish teacher, and I'm always telling students to make mistakes with confidence so they can learn to their fullest. Today, I was listening to your podcast with Ira Glass and loved what you said about mistakes so much that I made it into a poster to put in my classroom. Thanks for helping me to inspire my students. So apparently I said, even if you don't know anything, your passion to learn is not going to be mistaken for stupidity. Well, Tammy, (laughs) I'm glad that stuck out to you because I have no recollection of saying that, but I'm thrilled to hear that it's now a poster. I have to agree with you. It's a pretty good quote. Good ear. I'll share this on social media and everybody can enjoy Tammy's poster. Hope everyone is having a wonderful holiday. And speaking of holidays, if you're in search of a gift, treat yourself or your loved ones to tickets to my show. I'm going on tour, a national tour. I'll be in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, Columbus, Boston, D.C., Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, New Orleans, Chicago, Madison, New York City, and Ithaca, among many other cities. Go to tignotaro.com and I will see you out on the road. And now, on with the show. The thing I can't get over in your latest special is how many times your life was in danger. And you were on oh, stage. And you think it ended there at the end of that special? <laughs> no, I know. I, I, I know. I'm embarrassed I know. It's, to it's tell just, more stories. I figured. This is Don't Ask Tig. I'm Tig Notaro, forever leery of your queries. Joining me today is a very funny stand-up comedian who's been telling jokes on stage for over 20 years. He's a regular on Late Night. He even had a cameo in the movie Joker as a stand-up comedian. His most recent stand-up special is The Great Depression, and you can find it on HBO. Gary Gullman It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Yes, it's a pleasure to be on and also to see you. I think the last time we saw each other was in a Just for Laughs performance. Yeah, like backstage. In Toronto, yes. When was that? Like 10 years ago? Between seven and 10 years ago, I bet. Yeah, so let's say eight and a half. (laughs) Yes. So your latest special, The Great Depression, focused on depression and how it affected your life and... What is the relationship between comedy and depression? That's interesting because I I love to discuss that with other thoughtful comedians. Mm -hmm. So I guess I will, I hate to do this, answer a question with a question. Do you think that we are more likely to have mental illness or anxiety or depression? Or do you think that we are just more likely to be open and talk about it? Yes, Everybody loves to make it like comedians are miserable, they're depressed, they're 
crazy, they're dark, they're all of these things. And then they'll take it to it's artists. Artists are tortured people and musicians. They're this and th- and it's like, no, they're the ones expressing themselves yes, publicly. Thank you. And I think it's so unfair for people to put that on comedians or comedians to put that on themselves. And I always say, knock on your neighbor's door. And tell me if they're not dealing with depression, they're not dealing with anxiety, your mail carrier, yes. depressed, anxiety, all of the medications being prescribed, it's not all to comedians. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Yeah. There's billions of people on medication. Yes. And there's not billions of comedians. Yes. And I think it's harmful because a lot of comedians I know think, well, the reason I'm funny, the reason I have stories is because no. I'm depressed. I don't want to mess with it. I don't want to change no. it. And it, it's so foolish. I can't stand it. There's so much mythology around the tortured artist and the suffering. Yeah. And I like to tell people, if you're suffering, put aside your art Let your art suffer for you instead of the other way around. It's like people thinking that rock stars die in plane crashes. (laughs) That's a great analogy. If you logged every dentist that died in a plane crash, you would start to be like, oh, my God, dentists (laughs) always die in plane crashes. Yes, yes. And it's just not true. It's the romanticized, like, I don't know why it's romanticized that rock stars die in plane crashes, but other people do, too. So many comedians talk about being depressed. It's the cause of being a comedian, and it's just not true. And I wish that people who were depressed could get that kind of antidepressant of expressing yourself and getting laughs and being on stage, because I I think that's the other thing that we're drawn early on in life to that antidepressant, which is getting a laugh or laughing with people. And Mm -hmm. we just take it and make it a profession. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So what about through COVID and the pandemic? Because obviously that's affected a lot of people and their state of mind. And how have you been doing? And do you have advice for people that are struggling? Yes. I recognized, thank goodness, right away that this was a huge potential pitfall for me. And so I went back to my list of things that I did to get out of my depression, which involved exercise, initially moderate and then more intense. Like there were long walks and just walking my dogs and and that was very helpful, but also just reaching out to friends, even talking to them on the phone and then making sure that my medicine had refills. And I spoke with my doctor about potentially, if necessary, increasing dosages because I had done that once when, when I lost one of my dogs and that was very helpful. And then I started doing phone therapy on a weekly basis. And I I had a purpose during the pandemic, which was I have a, a book deal. So I've been writing a, a memoir So at least I had something every day where I had to put in some work. And sometimes it was just work and trying to find everything else to do besides write. Mm -hmm. The procrastination can really drive me bonkers. But I will say the trick to that was to set my timer for 18 minutes. And I said, just write for 18 minutes. And if you don't feel like writing anymore, you can stop. And invariably, I would continue and just keep repeating the 
alarm. And Why it, 18 minutes? Uh, I'm superstitious. I oh. found that 2018 was a really lucky year for me. And mm. so I keep using the number 18. But it's also, it's connected to Jewish numbers and mysticism. And I don't know how many bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs you've been to over the years, but people will a lot of times give monetary gifts in factors of 18. So mm, okay, it would take us the rest of the podcast to explain this Meshuggah habit, but <laughs> it's based on the superstitiousness of Jews, really. Okay. Well, yeah. I think that this is worth going extra long to hear all about. <laughs> I assure you it won't be. Yes. Uh, settle in, everyone. <laughs> Let's hear about the number 18. Now, you've been a college scholarship football player. Right. I got a scholarship to play football at Boston College, but the issue was that I was only athletic. I didn't really have that mindset of a dominating killer instinct laden teenager. So I was just overmatched from the get-go and I, I did not fit in with those guys. And it was something that I kept to myself until the This American Life people called me and asked me if I had a story. And I said, well, I played college football and it was a disaster. And they liked this story because I only played one year of high school football. And the thing I learned from that, and it overlaps with the Great Depression, was that this thing that I had kept to myself because I was so embarrassed by my failure, people were so interested in and thought it was a very compelling story. And this thing I was so ashamed of turned out to be something that people embraced. And it, it was it was such a great lesson that unfortunately I didn't learn until I was like 48 years old. Isn't that insane how that happens? Yeah. And then what about your days as an accountant? Oh. I mean, you're all over the place. Yeah, that was basically I went to college <laughs> and the, the football thing didn't work. And I knew that there were some kids in my school who were getting jobs right out of college and they were accounting majors. So I became an accounting major because I thought I'll, at least I'll have a job. And for the next three years, I tried to reconcile how it was meaningful to be an accountant. And then as I finished my senior year of college, I was like, this is just a, a, a you're just counting things. And, and you don't really love math. You love to write and you love to read and you love comedy. So I, I started to do that. But the response from my family, of, of course, was you'll never make a living at it. And when I first wanted to do comedy, my mother said, well, start by making us laugh. You don't make us laugh. <laughs> and, and I wanted to go back in time and say, I have evidence of making you laugh. I remember things that I said over the years that you laughed at. So you're just being gratuitously cruel yeah. and trying to suppress this. And there are still moments where I want to, in front of everybody, tell that story and call her out. Like I, And why don't you? Because I heard Bruce Springsteen saying that his mother and father wanted him to be either a lawyer or a writer. And he said it at a concert and they were there. And I thought that could make my mother really uncomfortable. And it might backfire because the thing about my mother is that as, as mean as she can be, she's incredibly charismatic and charming. <laughs> so people will always take her side. My stepfather was interviewed for this documentary that they did about me on Netflix. And actually, I don't know if this ended up in the documentary 
or if it's just a moment I remember, but it's the funniest thing in the world. They're interviewing him and asking him about me as a child and being funny as a kid. And he was like, I don't remember her being funny. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And meanwhile, I was the class clown. Yeah. I was like mischievous. I was like making everybody laugh. Like that's how disconnected we were. Yeah. And to be fair, there are plenty of people that see me now and still don't recognize <laughs> anything I'm doing as being funny. So I don't take any offense to that. But yeah, it's funny when you have to go back and try and prove or like, remember I would do this and yeah. like make funny faces or. Yeah. It makes me <laughs> admire the comedians you see who. You know that their parents could never have really understood their comedy because it was too avant-garde, like like Andy Kaufman type right. of comedians, where it would be understandable that most of the audience is not getting them and the family just doesn't understand what they're doing and they and they still persevere. You know it would be the most incredible documentary to see is all of the avant-garde comedians that didn't make it, that that nobody ever understood. Yeah. I mean, hibbly. Yeah. So uh, your mother's voice, you've said, is always in your head. And um, it sounds like she can be, you know, kind of difficult in ways. Or you called her mean. I'm not going to call that. You know, it's like you can call your mother anything you want. But right, right, right. You don't call someone else's mother anything. <laughs> but um, does she ever give good advice? She always told me to go to things for an hour. And if you're not having a good time, you can come home. And I really think it doesn't have to be an hour, but that's the arbitrary time she chose. But go for an hour. And I look back on so many things in my life where I say, it was really a good idea to go for an hour because I wound up having a good time and I wasn't going to go at all. So, and there there are sometimes I only stay for the hour and I'm proud of myself for getting out. But I really felt that without that sort of advice, I think I would have isolated even more, especially when I was depressed. I always tell people that's a, a really important thing when you're depressed, you're tending towards staying inside. And it's really helpful just for 10 minutes or five minutes to get out. And even if you see people you don't know, I find those little interactions at the coffee shop, they lighten me. I I really believe that. Well, yeah, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about writing. You just write for 18 minutes, just go out for an hour. You have to show up for things. Totally. And more times than not, you end up getting something out of it. Yeah. So listen, Gary, we haven't even started to give advice. Are you good at giving advice? I think I'm pretty good. I'm practiced at giving mm-hmm. advice because I, I, I don't know if this happened with you after your opening up about yourself and getting through things that a lot of people reach out to me. Yeah. I'm pretty thoughtful about the advice. And a, a lot of times the advice can just be that you should stop doing that. (laughs) Or ask somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) First up, we have a listener who followed in your footsteps and is currently a college athlete. Oh, wow. Elliot writes, I'm a successful college athlete at a small university in Oregon, but my grades are horrible. There's so many variables pulling me in all directions. I can't decide on the best option for me. COVID canceled my senior season, so I could either stay a fifth year and pray to the gods I can get enough good grades to play and graduate a year from now, or I just finish school this spring and leave my team behind and pray to the gods that I graduate 
Or I quit all this crazy online COVID volleyball charade and drop out for a while until my mind is right enough to finish later. Although no one around me thinks I would actually come back to finish. All options seem equally hard and annoying to me, all for their own reasons. Gary, fix Elliot. Wow. I went through the same thing. It was my freshman year of college, and I didn't have the great issue, but I might as well have because I was concerned about dropping out because I didn't want to play football anymore. And I never thought to myself, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. I only thought, what should I do? So I, I would. I think Elliot should ask himself that, what would make him happiest. The idea that you'll never go back went through my head a lot. I thought if I drop Mm -hmm. out now, I will never go back. But I had the same thought when I stopped doing comedy for a few months to address my depression and my suicidal ideation. And I fixed my brain and went back and thrived. And I wonder if Elliot can get his head together outside of school better. But the good thing about going to school is that a lot of times they have a good therapy department and you can work through things through that. So I think that might be helpful to have a professional's opinion on this. But to dismiss the idea of stopping for a while because you're afraid you'll never come back, I think is sort of betting against yourself and not believing in yourself. And I also want to say that I understand how difficult it is to get even average grades while playing a sport in college. The time commitment is enormous. And there are kids who only have to worry about school and they're having a hard time getting good grades. So it's doubly, triply hard to do that while playing a sport. It's like having a a full-time job that also makes you exhausted. And a lot of times there's also the confidence issue with, with sports where you feel down after a game or a practice and maybe you're not thriving in that area. I, I know the two work against each other. So I, I don't know whether that answers Elliot's question or what, what do you think? I mean, I think you're essentially just saying like, it's okay to take time off, right? Yeah. And I also think that there's something to, if you really think about it or you sit with yourself, you know the answer. Yeah. And trusting that is kind of key. And I feel like Elliot knows he maybe should step away or yeah, it's okay. I didn't have extremely wise parents. I had kind parents, but I don't think they have that professional training to really guide a teenager or however old Elliot is. I think if he hasn't already, it might be helpful to consult a therapist on campus or a wise professor or an advisor. I know that I originally got sent to therapy when I was in college by the man who basically his job was to help the athletes stay eligible. Mm -hmm. But he did so much more than that. I, I mean, he arranged tutors and provided extra time for certain people. So it was very helpful. So maybe there's somebody involved with the athletic program like that who could help Elliot. There are older people who find Elliot's in the world. Elliot is a is a thoughtful athlete and want to mm-hmm. help them. I mean, I, I don't know him, but just the fact that he's a fan of, of yours means that he's he's not a meathead athlete. He's he's <laughs> he's a thoughtful person with some empathy and kindness in him. So that is my advice. The intersection of meatheads and Tignataro fans is, is very narrow. 
There's a few that would surprise you. That, <laughs> really? <laughs> that pop up out there. <laughs> There's a few. There's a few. We could talk about that another time. Okay. Elliot, Gary and I are rooting for you. Yeah. Whether you're playing volleyball or not. Yeah. We're behind you. Yeah. And just to clarify, the majority of my fan base is tremendous. I'm sure you love yours as well. I, I really do. I'm so grateful for them. Gary, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more questions after the break. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Gary Gullman. This next one is from a concerned parent. Eliza writes, my 11-year-old daughter, who's a huge fan of yours, Tig, has been making people belly laugh since before she could speak. She also struggles with ADHD, OCD, and she hates school and experiences a lot of anxiety around learning. My questions for you are, what was school and learning like for you? Do you know other comedians who struggled in school, maybe never, quote unquote, made it in comedy, but still managed to find fulfilling lives? Um, school was a living hell for me. I truly failed three grades and then dropped out of high school. And I have a seventh grade education. That is the last year that I graduated. And I still found my way. So I have hope for people. And I also see so many comedians that do find happiness and success, whether they become writers or actors. I had a friend that was like, actually doing pretty well in comedy. And he was like, I want to be married with kids and live in the suburbs and just have a job. Wow! And so it's like so hard to predict what people are going to want, where they're going to go. You know what I mean? Yes. I just think that being supportive and encouraging, of course, always is the best answer and to be present and available. But um, do you have any particular thoughts or feelings about that, Gary? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I would use to predict the daughter's success is that she clearly has a mother who cares about her and knows yeah. who her favorite comedian is and knows what she's dealing with in, in school. I, I mean, it's interesting because I'm writing this memoir that's called K through 12, and it's all about my experience in grade school and high school. And it was torture. It, it really, I had so much anxiety going to school and I didn't have ADHD. So that makes it even, even worse. But I was very anxious and depressed, but I didn't have a mother who was aware or understood what was going on. And I had a father, my father didn't live with us. So it was very challenging, but I will say that the daughter's humor and also, again, these questions are sort of self-selecting because these are people who get Tignataro. Your daughter is obviously a pretty intelligent 
11-year-old to understand because these are adult comedy shows that are predicated on knowing some things about life and the world and having some wisdom. I would predict that your daughter will be fine and there's never been a better time to have ADHD and there are treatments and strategies. And our friend Todd Glass had dyslexia and he, mm -hmm. he is very successful as a comedian and very happy as a human. And so I, I don't know that she necessarily has to become a comedian, but there are so many other areas in terms of expressing yourself and making people laugh that are open to us as they never have been before. Well, it's like what you're saying, yeah, with a, writing a book. Yeah. I feel like 11 is the prime age to write a joke book. Yes. Um, yes. Or just keep a be, journal. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I don't know. My son is five and um, he's writing. <laughs> just He's writing jokes. Uh, he loves jokes. Is he the oldest? They're twins. Oh, that's okay. So that's the last time I saw you. Yeah. They were infants. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. then there you go. We found yeah. out how okay. long it's been. It's right. not at all when we thought it was. Yeah, but he loves, um, he loves jokes. He loves jokes. And you tell me what you think about this joke. Okay. Where does an ant sleep? I don't know. Well, I immediately said, in an ant bed. <laughs> and he said, what's an ant bed? And so did my wife. She said, what's an ant bed? I was like, it's the little hill that the ants live in. Yeah. That's the answer. No, my son was like, no, it's a on a napkin. Oh. Oh, I like He's that. Five. He's I five. I like that. He's five. But right. But the answer should be in an ant bed. No, it, sh it should be. And I'm picturing an ant bed and it's adorable. Yeah. But you yeah. know what an ant bed is, right? The yes. little hill? Yeah, the ant yeah. hill. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's... Uh, it, it's called an ant bed. Right. But maybe he knows it is an ant hill, so that's what confused him. That's probably what it was. Uh, Eliza, yeah. um, you clearly care deeply about your daughter, and she's lucky to have you as a parent. Yes. We're going to take a quick break to answer a question that came in our therapy etiquette inbox. This segment is where we answer those awkward questions we all have as people getting the professional help we need and deserve and is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. From Anonymous. Hi, Tig. My partner of about nine months is super rad, but we don't have the greatest communication. I mentioned a few weeks back that I wanted to meet his family. He has met mine. And he said he understood, but he hadn't seen them. So it wasn't as if he was keeping me from them. Well, yesterday he saw them and I wasn't invited. When I try to break up with him, citing our poor communication, he insists he wants to work it out and he wants to be with me and he can do better. But it's not getting better. I love this guy so much, but sometimes he makes me facepalm straight down into my overpriced tacos. I suggested we go talk to a counselor to help build better communication skills, and he said he'd think about it, but that it didn't sound like something he'd enjoy very much. And he hasn't brought it back up to me. Everything is further complicated because I'm a single mom to a young kid, and I'm not getting any younger, and I just feel like time's a-wasting. At my last gyno appointment, the nurse alluded to my age and menopause, and I found it all quite morbid and chilling. For context, I'm 34. For goodness sake, what should I do? Thanks, Tig. Love you. Dear Anonymous, it sounds like you're running into a wall with this guy, and that you've been pretty clear about all the things that 
really matter to you without any sort of real changes in behavior. And it seems like you want to break up, but can't. Am I right? Here's an honest question. Is this about getting everyone to counseling with consent or figuring out if it's time to split up? If this is about getting to counseling, maybe ask, hey, it's important that we find a counselor and that you really are on board and want to go too. Can you find a couple of names of people you'd be interested in meeting as we find someone? You know, make it a concrete plan, one that's actionable. And it also doubles as a litmus test. Are you going to take the time to work on us or have you decided that you won't? I just wanted to paraphrase something you said yourself. None of us are getting any younger. One way I interpret that for you is that you deserve to be in a relationship where you feel heard and that you're making progress on your challenges. Sometimes that can happen through mutual work and sometimes that happens after we've decided to move on. It's sad, I know. Or it could be happy. I don't know. I hope it's been helpful to hear what I'm saying, or at least somewhat reassuring. Thanks to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now let's get back to our conversation with the incredible Gary Gullman. Gary, we have one last listener question. Okay. Okay. Laura writes... I've been lifelong friends with Wendy, and she and her husband are constantly asking if their four-year-old can have a play date with my three-year-old. This issue is that their kid is a nightmare. My kid says she's a bully, and she is. She's always putting my kid down, saying mean and inappropriate things to her, just being an unpleasant person. I don't want to be around her, and I don't want my kid to be around her. I can only feign busy for so long, especially in COVID times when no one's doing anything. Should I talk to my friends about it? I don't want to offend them. I feel like I need to stand up for my child. I don't want another play date ending in tears. Oh. Here's the unfortunate thing. I'm very sad that this is happening, and I will say out of the gate, yes, you should talk to your friends. But it sounds like it's that whole thing of, Likely this child, this four-year-old, your friend's kid, there's probably something going on if she's that much of a nightmare or bully or putting your kid down. You know, there might be something traumatic going on in this four-year-old's life. And I know it might be hard to see that or care uh, because she's hurt your child and made your life miserable. But um, I feel like talking to the parents might bring a better understanding and maybe very gently bring up, is there maybe something going on or is she learning something at school or playing with somebody else or is is somebody being mean to her elsewhere? Whether it's a kid or a parent, I, I don't know, but I feel like you have to gently bring this up. And I think gently bringing it up will inevitably bring up a big conversation or shut it down, in which case it might not be the friendship that you think you have or that you can have with these people. But that's that's what I feel. And that's what I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I mean, I'm not a, a, a parent, but I, I've been a kid and I, I 
just know that it's so interesting because there were so many times where I would just go over to people's house and there would be people there who were like older kids. They were like sadistic and I never even mentioned it to my to my mother. I don't want to I don't want to go over there and I never say, well, it's because they take my arm and they put it behind my back until it, until it really hurts. So I, I, I think it's great that the parent is aware of what's going on and the, and the child is communicating. And that's it, so Great, but I, I think that's really good advice to to talk to the to the parents because maybe they they are unaware and you're right. There may be somebody in that child's life who is who is is uh, teaching them that type of behavior or is, or is bullying them. It it could even be a sibling. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, Laura, that's our advice. And and Gary, what is the best advice you've ever received? Wow. Um, I would say my therapist in college, I was in, in the midst of my first adult relationship with a woman. And I said, I don't, I, I don't understand. And I was so foolish. I said, I don't understand women. How can you, how do you figure them out? And he said, he said, one at a time, <laughs> one at a time. And, and I, I, I thought that was, that was in, in its, in its the brevity. It was so efficient. He was saying, yeah, they're human beings. They, you just, yeah. you're not going to find a rule for, but at yeah, 19, there's not an answer. Yeah, at 19 years old, I, I was like, there's got to be some code to figuring out people. And, and I, I just thought that was that, that prepared me for the, the search for the most important thing really in my life, which is a, an, a, an adult re- relationship and, and also didn't, didn't make me susceptible to the type of, here's how you treat women, kid. You gotta, right. <laughs> you gotta go out there and you gotta be the boss or else they don't. Uh, or you just gotta let them gripe and gripe. <laughs> just let them go. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it, it was really good advice that I, I treasure to this day. It was, it was at the, it was the right, I mean, the other thing about great advice is it has to come at the the right time. If it had happened when I was 11 or if it happened when I was in my thirties, it would have been too early or too late. So. Yeah. yeah. And what about the uh, worst advice? The worst advice. I, I remember this manager when I first came to New York, um, I went on stage and I, I, bombed I, I mean it, it was it was one of those bombs where you where you're walking or maybe this doesn't happen to everybody but you are in kind of a daze afterwards and you and everything leading up to this moment is just the the I finished so short with the amount of material that usually lasted me 10 minutes that for three minutes I had nothing to say until the host came back from having a cigarette I had run out of jokes and nothing that I had said already worked. So I was going into like the, the stuff that wasn't good enough to not work. And, <laughs> and anyhow, the, the, the manager afterwards, he said, you should go back to Boston and, and hide out for a couple of years. And this, this whole thing where you're, you're anxious and you're not comfortable with your, with yourself, you should abandon that because nobody's buying it. And basically he was saying, Hey, uh, you know that thing where you're you? You should stop being <laughs> you should stop being you. Get and, out now. Yeah. And and go back to Boston, figure it out. And and an, another comedian talked me out of uh, abandoning New York City and, and I stayed and, and everything worked out. But I remember that was the, the worst ad, advice. I mean it would have cost me everything to to, to have taken that advice. 
Wow. Yeah, I've yeah. had many, um, many pieces of advice along the way that I could have taken the special where I, you know, mentioned that I had cancer and everything. And I had been told by two people that I respected and was so close to. And they were just looking out for me um, because they were like, just you've been through a lot. Don't go on stage and talk about that. Just do something light. And I think you'll feel better. And I'm I was like, I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, I can't talk about anything else. I'm like, yeah, dying. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And uh, and I can't just be like, knock, knock. Right, right. You have this opportunity <laughs> yeah. to be a, the, the ult- ultimate authenticity. And and yeah, that would have been terrible advice. But yeah, they, they truly were just, uh, yeah. for my, you know, they cared about me and that's sure. what they thought would be best. And I, you know, I, it's, it goes back to that idea of, of, you know, what you're supposed to do a lot of times. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, Gary, now we're finally at the end of the show. Darn it. Oh, this has been so nice talking to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And I, I hope we get to connect the next time I'm in LA or you're in New York city or we, we cross paths. Thank you for spending your time with me today. And uh, do you have anything that you want to let people know about? I'm headlining at Carnegie Hall as part of the New York Comedy Festival. I don't know if this will air before then, but if it does, you can see me there or or you can say, uh, hey, that guy was at Carnegie Hall. Well, congrats to you. I hope your mother comes and that she uh, she gets it. It's the first venue I've mentioned that she had heard of. So I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> She'd never heard of side splitters in Tampa. <laughs> I was about to say side splitters. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. know, like the owner of side splitters is listening to this going, well, I'm sure they're not. But if they were, they're like, uh, no, they're not. Yeah. That's not, that's not funny. What's so funny? What's so funny about the side splitters? <laughs> yeah. We split your sides here. Yeah. All right. It was great to see you. Thanks again. Same here. Thanks for including me in this. This is such a great show. Of course. Thank you. Bye, Tig. Bye. And don't forget to go to tignotaro.com to get your tickets to my national tour, as well as some Canadian dates. So uh, see you there. Don't Ask Tig is hosted by me, Tig Notaro. It's produced by Thomas Willette, Shana Deloria, and Ryan Lore. Our executive producer and editor is Beth Perlman. Engineering and sound mixing by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. Digital production by James Napoli. Talent booking by Marianne Ways. Production support from Pizza Shark and Dan Latou. Our theme music is Friend and Tig by Edie Burkell and Kyle Crusham. 
and Listen to Your Heart by Edie Burkell. Special thanks to Hunter Seidman. APM Studios executives in charge are Lily Kim, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Concept developed by Tracy Mumford. Our executive consultant is Dean Capello and Gobsmack Studios. You can always ask for advice at don'tasktig.org. Just write in with your problem or send us a voice memo. Remember to follow us on social media at Don't Ask Tig. Don't Ask Tig is a production of American Public Media. And as always, thanks, Dana, and I'll tell Becky. I'm stand-up comedian and sex symbol Tig Notaro. And I'm actor and writer Cheryl Hines. Before Cheryl and I got into the big business of podcasting together, (laughs) we were just simply friends. And we're still friends. But now we talk about a different documentary every week on our podcast, Tig and Cheryl, True Story. So whether you love documentaries or just want to hear us slowly lose our minds, check out Tig and Cheryl, True Story, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, cool.